Season two of the Flourishing Therapreneur is brought to you by Thryzer. Thryzer provides therapists with an end-to-end, out-of-network billing support for their clients. Are you in private practice and want to support clients in getting reimbursed with their super bills and other out-of-network expenses, but don't have the bandwidth to do it alone? Look no further. Thryzer submits all of your insurance claims after every appointment to get faster reimbursement for your ideal clients. And even better, they handle all denials and slowdowns so that clients don't have to stress or contact insurance at all. Thryzer is affordable and seamless. It's absolutely free to sign up and the processing fee is only 3%. Partnering with Thryzer is an awesome way to make your private pay practice more accessible while positively improving your client experience, thus impacting your client retention and increasing your professionalism for your private practice. Better yet, the onboarding process is seamless and it's super easy to onboard clients and get started. So what are you waiting for? Check out the link in the show notes and use the code flourish to begin your three week free trial. Welcome to the flourishing therapreneur podcast, a podcast that equips therapists to thrive in business, expand their reach and create flourishing and meaningful lives, both personally and professionally. I'm your host, Claire Blakey. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist in private practice. I believe in being a multi-passionate therapist. You can have a thriving, financially impactful business, be a leader in the community, and also a business entrepreneur. You don't have to choose, and your impact as a clinician can go beyond the therapy room. I believe that you can be a therapist and an entrepreneur, a therapreneur, and I believe that every therapist deserves the tools community, and resources to build thriving businesses and flourishing lives. I pair my passion and previous career in PR, marketing, and blogging with my education and experience as a clinician to equip therapists like you who are multi-passionate and wanting to pursue additional opportunities to grow your skill set and expand your reach. So what are we waiting for? Let's get going. Let's create impact and build flourishing lives and businesses we're proud of. Here we go. Hi, Victoria, and welcome to the Flourishing Therapreneur Podcast. So glad to have you here today. I'm hoping that you can share a little bit about yourself so that the audience has a sense of who you are and what to expect as we go through this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Claire, thank you so much for having me on. You know, my name is Victoria Rodriguez, and I help community mental health professionals and agencies navigate in-home services. Um, I'm just starting out in private practice, too, so that's been kind of a transition. Um, And I know we were talking about this before, but I'm also doing a PhD program where uh, my dissertation is on in-home services. So there's a lot of stuff going on right now. I'm really excited to share with your audience maybe what it looks like to balance all of those hats, to balance all of those jobs um, because I think that's really important for beginning professionals and even professionals later in the field, um, you know, to find that balance, whether it's in community mental health or in private practice or in a graduate program. Yeah. Well, I'm so excited to have this conversation, especially like even just what you said, tapping into all the things that you, all the hats that you wear and all the roles that you fill. Um, I think a lot of people can relate to the different roles, like whether it's being in grad school still and doing a PhD, whether it's working in private practice, but specifically the community mental health piece, I feel like is a conversation that isn't always talked about, but it's one that is usually very familiar for therapists because a lot of us do our clinical hours in community mental health and um, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, And so 
before we kind of go straight into it, do you want to just share a little bit about maybe some of your clinical experiences at for practicum sites or like walk us back to like, you're currently still in grad school, but like the beginning of grad school in terms of when you first had to do a clinical site, like walk us through some of your lived experiences. So we just have a sense of where you're coming from. Yeah. So I, um, was completing my master's program when I first got involved with community mental health as almost an add-on to my internship site. So I ended up having two internship sites. Um, I know everybody says this, but you know, don't do what I did where I was working like 60 hours a week, you know, at a university counseling center, you know, so 20 hours there and then 40 hours full time in community mental health. Um, and it was super unsustainable. Yeah. While taking classes at the same time. So I feel like that's really important to talk about of, you know, do as I say, not as I do. It was not the best version of modeling, but that's Mm -hmm. really where I was introduced to the idea of, wow, grad school did really and cannot, like it's just not capable of preparing you for every situation that's going to come up in community mental health. So for me, community mental health meant providing these counseling services inside clients' homes. Now, these clients were often, um, you know, marginal, you know, from marginalized groups in South Louisiana. So I was traveling, you know, um, maybe 30 minutes to an hour to see these clients, you know, down the bayou or up the bayou, you know, in really rural areas. Um, you know, they were multi-challenged. There was a lot of ethical ambiguity. So, you know, it's hard to remember what a theorist said about, you know, how to deal with trauma when, you're like, okay, are there going to be drugs in this home? Is there a dog that's going to pee on my bag? Like I never had any animal be violent with me, but there were a lot of animals that really, you know, interrupted session or like kids in the session or, um, visitors in the home that you didn't, you know, even know, okay, should I introduce myself? Should I not introduce myself because Mm -hmm. of confidentiality? Should I still even have this session? Um, So I think for a lot of us, there was just a lot of um, ambiguity. And there's really no model, you know, that we were taught anyway in community mental health about, you know, okay, what do I do in this situation? Or how do I handle a client that wants to smoke around me? Like, can I tell them not to smoke when it's in their own home? You know, do I have a right to, to set that boundary around my own health? So that's where I really started getting interested in, you know, what would it even look like for us to have a model in community mental health? You know, what would it look like for us to make this work sustainable for myself and for clinicians, you know, that would, that would come after me. Um, Mm. so that's what really started my interest. And I thought, you know, I really want to study this further after grad school. You know, that was a, that was a real point of burnout for me. And Mm. I thought I really want to study this further. So, um, you know, with the awesome encouragement of my supervisors and professors, you know, in my graduate program, I was able to get into the PhD program at the University of New Orleans for counselor, counselor education and supervision. So then, um, it it was a really difficult time to navigate. You know, I was still doing community mental health at that time while still driving, you know, two hours or, you know, I think it equaled out to like six hours every week, um, going back and forth to school, receiving supervision myself, and then giving supervision to students. So (laughs) for me, it all comes back to that balance of, yeah, finding balance in community mental health while studying it too. So I've had a lot of opportunities, you know, to, to engage myself like in that research, but also in the, in the work. Right. Yeah. Well, and that's so curious too, because I feel like that just feels like such a theme for therapists a lot lot of times in grad school of like, there's a lot of parallel experiences, whether it's like you're saying like the parallel that you just listed or like, as 
you know, you're becoming a therapist, you're like holding space for people, but then you're also doing your own therapy and you're processing parallel things of trauma from childhood or, you know, just all the different pieces. And so it's curious just how you spoke into that for a second of just like, yeah, there, there's sometimes these overwhelming, like parallel moments that happen. Yeah. And it is, so it can be like a good thing because, because there are so many parallels, you have these models, right? So like Mm -hmm. I'm receiving supervision while giving supervision, you know, I can just turn to my supervisor and say, how would you handle this problem if I came to you with this problem, you know, or vice versa, um, or in community mental health, I can say, okay, I know how to handle this situation because I'm literally writing a dissertation on it, which made it just easier. Right. And, you know, community mental health is typified by isolation. So often, you know, you're driving by yourself. There's not a home base office. You can't just walk down the hall to like ask your coworker a question. You're not meeting at the coffee station. So for me, almost doing a PhD program allows me to have those coworkers or those colleagues that I really wouldn't otherwise have in the field, you know? Yeah. That's actually really kind of sweet. It sounds kind of like a healing experience or like you're kind of getting what you wish you had in those moments. And like maybe through your research, able to impact and change some of the stuff that is present working in community mental health. Um, I'm wondering if you could kind of speak into for anyone that's listening that I'm wondering is in grad school, maybe they're about to start their first kind of clinical sites, or maybe they're in the thick of community mental health. Like, do you want to kind of share a little bit about like maybe what you wish you knew before you started, or maybe tapping back into when you first began, like feelings of like, is this even safe? Like I'm going to the people's houses and like, so out of your comfort zone. I mean, I think even back to when I first became a therapist and like the first client I sat with, I was at a counseling center. And I, at least if I needed to, there was a supervisor in the other room and there were other people seeing other clients in that same building. But like, I can imagine the vulnerability of, okay, I'm driving to their house. Okay. I'm going in, like bring us back to those kind of moments. And just what would you say to someone that's kind of navigating that? Sure. So, you know, the first thing that comes up when you talk about choosing that internship site is especially in whether it's cities or rural areas, right, is I would really encourage the student to shop around, you know, for an agency that pays a salary. Like whether you meet with that client or not, they're going to pay that salary because I feel like that takes off so much of the pressure on you to kind of figure things out while figuring out your finances at the same time, you know, like community mental health is already so unstable that you need some sort of like financial stability. And I would also mm-hmm. suggest that you find, um, you find somebody like either the CEO or the supervisor who's going to be directly over you, um, you know, make sure, see if they've done the work. So I was super lucky to work for an agency where my supervisor, like all of the supervisors actually had done that in-home work, had done community mental health for years. And the CEO came from a social work background, which you would be so Mm -hmm. surprised. Like all of these community mental health agencies who are run by people with business backgrounds or even tech backgrounds, um, you know, or just um, a health backgrounds who maybe have not necessarily done that work. And what we find in the research and in my own experiences, that can really make a difference, you know, because supervision is so, it's so necessary in this type of work, right? Yeah. And then when doing that type of work, so I really encourage you, like, find outside supervision, if that's something that you can invest in, you know, find somebody who's going to meet that need for you, who can really guide you through every specific issue that's going to come up in in homework, because there's really no, 
there's no supervisor or model that's going to prepare you for like every single issue that comes up. Um, yeah. so I think that would be my biggest advice is like, look for the mentors. Um, you can even find if they're looking for extra resources, you know, I run an Instagram page and a blog, um, at my car is my office, you know, for those students or supervisees who are looking, um, for maybe just that extra support because it can mm-hmm. be so isolating and you might not know even what questions to ask, you know, if you run into those issues. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Cause I feel like you're really creating a space that, kind of doesn't exist. Like you said, like even the name of your Instagram, like it's like highlighting, like my car is my office and like, I'm alone in this. And so like to have a place that people can bring questions or connect and learn more is so awesome. Now I'm wondering if you could, um, cause I feel like before we hit record, we started talking a little bit about guilt and guilt that comes up, whether it's the guilt of being like, okay, I need to serve my time. I need to do community mental health or other guilt that kind of comes in when it comes to being a therapist or when it comes to, you know, using insurance and like different pieces. Um, can we kind of tag a little bit of that conversation into this? Cause I feel like it really just pairs well. Like I feel like there's a lot there. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that is a big deal for me and kind of, um, the work that I'm doing now with students or with supervisees is I see what comes up a lot is, um, is just this guilt of, am I working hard enough? You know, am I doing everything that is going to be necessary to survive in this job? Am I serving my clients correctly? You know, um, and, and it's, it's not so much imposter syndrome. That's an issue, but it's the guilt that accompanies it. Right. And Mm. even for therapists in private practice, this guilt of, I could be working more, you know, do I need to slide my scale to accept these clients who can't afford it? You know, do I need Mm -hmm. to be on this insurance panel? You know, am I doing enough? And so what I always try to ask these students is, you know, when you're thinking about that guilt that comes up when you're doing community mental health, I'm wondering, could you ask yourself, who is my guilt benefiting? As in, you know, is it, is it really benefiting the client when I am lying? And I have done this, right? And so many of us have done the same where you're lying awake at night and you're like, shoot, I really could have said something better. I could have handled this situation better. How am I going to handle this situation tomorrow? You know, and I always tell myself, you know, feeling guilty in bed is not billable hours. Like that is not useful. (laughs) really to anybody. It's not case conceptualization. Like this guilt is not leading to anything productive. And when I really stopped to think about who was benefiting from that time where I was feeling super guilty about, you know, how is my client going to find housing? You know, how are, how are we going to meet their basic needs? Um, is it wasn't really problem solving so much as it was benefiting my agency in a sense that they were getting Mm -hmm. all this unpaid thought time for me, you know, the, the time that I really stopped to think deeply about these cases, you know, that's time, um, that I should have really been spending on, on the job, you know, or should have been allowed on the job. But sometimes we're run so ragged in community mental health or we're so burned out that we really don't have Mm -hmm. that expansive space or that time to think deeply about cases or to really problem solve in those cases. So that's really a question that I try to ask myself both in my graduate work and in, um, community mental health and in private practice. Yeah. Oh, I love what you're sharing about this because I think we can all relate to, those feelings that linger after a session or like, like, like you said, whether it's imposter syndrome or whether that's just like really caring for your client and wanting to do the right intervention or support them in the best way. And 
kind of ruminating, you know, whether it's late at night or whether it's, you know, after you're off the clock. Um, and that really bleeds into our personal time that it bleeds into just our day and the way we connect with our partners or our friends or the time that we have outside of session. And, um, yeah, a lot of what the heartbeat of the flourishing therapeneur is to like flourish and to nourish personally and professionally. And sometimes when we so focus so much on the professional, which a lot of us are such caring humans that want the best for our clients. Um, sometimes that can actually hurt us because we're not, you know, nourishing ourselves. We're not taking that life separation from our job, which is so hard to do, especially when you're literally in their homes, literally invested in like the most intimate parts of their life. And you genuinely care. Mm. Um, yeah. I'm wondering like, what, what would you say? What would be your advice to people in terms of like, what, what would make it like, how do, how do they make their jobs easier in terms of community mental health? Like how, how can they like learn from some of the things that you've learned, whether it's through your PhD and the things that you're researching, like what, what tips would you give to people that are currently navigating it? How can, how can it not feel as heavy of a burden or how do they let go of that guilt? Yeah. Um, so first of all, get a PhD and just study it. Cause that's what worked <laughs> for me. Um, it was kind of the, you know, it, it's almost like there's just so much, like just so much information, like, inf- you know, high caseloads, high burnout, um, poor supervision practices that what I would really encourage students to do, um, you know, or anybody working in community mental health, not just students is that you really need to actively create your own systems of support. Now for students, this can look, you know, this can look super different. You know, you might, I would start off again with finding an agency that has those levels of support, you know, so you want to ask yourself, are there high turnover rates? You know, who has worked at that agency? You know, is there an upperclassman who's worked at that agency before me? And what can they tell me about the culture of that agency? Um, you know, do the, do the, are the clients prioritized? Are there ethical practices, you know, um, because I promise you if they're taking advantage of their employees, they're going to be taking advantage of their clients later on and, and so forth, you know, mm-hmm. and of their interns and their students. So I would first start, start off in that um, preventative, you know, doing those preventative measures. Now, when you're in the thick of it, when you're in community mental health, you really want to combat that isolation because I think that can get, um, can really get in the way of some impactful clinical work. It can cause burnout and can get in the way of your own self-care. Um, so something that helped me was just creating, you know, um, what it, even like group text messages that we had mm-hmm. as a team together, you know, and creating that sense of community and just asking, Hey, how did you deal with this issue? Or how did you deal with a client who had a family member in the room present? You know, how did yeah. you deal with a client who was struggling, um, you know, with this issue while with domestic violence, you know, that's a big one that comes up, you know, while still in the home, do I go in the home? Do I not? Um, so I think for me, you know, just having that community of clinicians who have been through those experiences before really helped take care of some of that isolation and even that ethical ambiguity. Mm. Um, so, and then just taking active steps. So this, and this is a really difficult one too, because this depends on identity. So for me, if I walk, like, if I can be just very honest on the podcast, like when I walk into a home that has super, um, like strong, political opinions, whether that's through flags or signs on the wall. I'm like, "Mm, you know, I might be uncomfortable. Like it might Mm -hmm. cause me discomfort, but I do want to say for, um, black clinicians or clinicians of color, like it can be issues of safety. 
going into those homes that have like particular, you know, political ideologies or, I mean, look, I'm in the South. We have Confederate flags like everywhere at almost every home that I've gone into. So Mm -hmm. I think it's really important when we talk about creating sense, you know, a sense of comfort that for myself as a white clinician, comfort is going to look very different for me than it might look for, you know, a person of color or, um, or a black woman, like going into these types of homes. Um, So I think while it's important for me to like ensure my comfort, it's even more important for another clinician to ensure their safety, right? Mm. Um, I think also, you know, kind of my last point is just having a checklist. Like when we talk about safety, you know, let your supervisor know your schedule, like what homes you're going to if you can. Um, You know, make sure you're parking backwards, into the home. So if you're going into a driveway, you know, make sure that nobody can block you in, you know, make sure that you can, um, take off quickly, you know, just in case, make sure you're looking around the home, um, you know, for any safety issues, whether that's like open flames, which happens so often. I don't know why that happens so often, but I have to repeat that, that, you know, make sure there are no open flames in the home, check the weather, you know, before you leave or head back, you know, for, for anything intense out there, but, but definitely having a safety checklist and just being aware of how you're presenting and how your clients are presenting um, is so important to ensuring that safety when you're out and about in the field. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, I love kind of just hearing your wisdom on that because I think especially the piece that you highlighted of like our own privilege and like recognizing that, you know, you as a therapist, you might have a very different experience than another therapist. And um, to really be aware of that and to honor that as we support other clinicians. Um, but it's funny kind of to hear you talk about the different things to consider. Like I'm in Santa Barbara where it's 70 degrees all the time. Like I've never even thought about checking the weather <laughs> before I see a client, but no, I guess depending on where you live in, in the country, like, yeah, there are different things to consider or, you know, in the same way that, you know, I don't go to in-home, um, sessions, but in the same way you kind of like position yourself somewhere in the room and you want to make sure that you're closest to the door. Like that makes exactly. so much sense. There's a lot of safety things to consider, especially in someone else's house. Um, now I'm wondering like some of the things that we talk about in community mental health, um, they sound really hard. Like it sounds like a very, um, like rewarding, but also like very draining, you know, world to be serving and community to be working with. Um, so what would you say in terms of like, why do you think, some people stay in it for so long instead of maybe transitioning to private practice or like, what are like the reasons that people love doing it? Or I just want to understand more in terms of, you know, what that world looks like. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a really good question. So actually one of my favorite, um, researchers that we connected over Instagram, uh, Dr. Janelle Cox actually just put out a piece, um, about, you know, the work life of community mental health professionals. And the truth is it is so, it is hard. It's difficult work. You know, I never want to take that away, but it can also be so varied in experience, you know, depending on the agency that you're with. So some agencies might be more supportive than others. Um, one of the, the content experts on my dissertation chair, she did community mental health work in DC for something like 10 years which I could never, I have no idea how she sustained that for so long, but there are people out there, you know, maybe not necessarily for me that do it for decades at a time. Right. Um, I think what keeps clinicians, you know, in community mental health when it's not sustainable for them, you know, when it's not a good fit for them, I think 
what, um, what a big motivator that I hear, um, from my colleagues, from myself and from, you know, supervisees is, is, um, is fear, you know, almost like the fear of the unknown. Cause you're right. A lot about what you talk about in your podcast is how grad school does not really prepare you for private practice. But I think we also get a lot of messages about how in grad school, about how scary private practice can be, right? Like you're not going to make a lot of money. You're not going to survive out there, you know, um, insurance isn't sustainable. Private pay isn't sustainable. So it's almost like we receive all of these messages about what private practice is supposed to look like versus really sitting down and saying, you know, is community mental health working for me right now? And what would it really, what would it genuinely really look like to be in private practice and to kind of forge my own path that might not look like what others have done. And that's what yeah. I love about, um, you know, podcasts like yours, you know, is what does it look like to really flourish in all kinds of settings, you know, in your mm. own career? Um, and I think yeah. that's a really personal question that, yeah. um, those who are in community mental health, but are thinking about moving out really need to explore, you know, whether that's in therapy themselves or with a great mm -hmm. supervisor or a mentor. Yeah. Well, I like what you're saying and thank you for the encouragement too about the podcast, but like that piece of when you think about when people say things like, like you were listing, like people saying, Oh, you can't make it with insurance or you can't make it in cash pay or private practice is hard. Something that I like to kind of question is not to be putting anyone down. Cause you're not, that's not what I'm about at all, but it's kind of like when people give you advice, like wondering, like, is this advice for me or who's giving me the advice? And like, how are they different from me? Because kind of like what you were highlighting earlier, like we're all so unique as therapists in terms of what we're passionate about or some of our own lived experiences that, yeah, for someone that doesn't like marketing and doesn't like building websites and doesn't like, you know, putting themselves out there and, and charging their own rate and doing certain things, private practice would be awful. And that would maybe not be a good fit. So like some of the people that have spoken certain things, I think it's important for us to question like, what are their experiences or maybe what are, what is their skill set, or what, what was their, you know, process like, because that doesn't mean that's going to be our process because we're all so different. And we all, some of us have different careers and then we become therapists and some of us, you know, really thrive in certain settings. And so just the personalization just really struck me of like, yeah, like in the same way with community mental health, for some people that is like exactly where they're supposed to be. It's totally their skill set. It's totally their passion and they're flourishing and they're impacting it. And for others, maybe it's like 10 years is way too long. <laughs> There's no way I could do that for 10 years, you know? So I think we all are so yeah. different. Um, but I'm wondering if you want to maybe share a little bit about, um, because you have a unique experience of having this, um, this impact and this, um, you know, opportunity to be really involved in community mental health, but you also have a private practice. So for anyone else that's kind of in a similar spot, like how do you even begin to plan to move away from community mental health into private practice? Like what, what were steps that you took or what mm. are things that you're wanting to grow in or any advice you'd have for people that are in a similar spot? Yeah, that's such a good question because, um, I think for me, you know, everybody wants to say that it was a very unique experience, but, for me, it was kind of a defining moment. Um, 
where I was working community mental health and I had really planned to stay at my agency until I finished my PhD. I was like, you know what? I don't want to learn anything new. Like I need to, you know, cause it takes a lot of brain power to start a private practice. Like you're putting yourself out there, you're learning all these new systems. Um, so I was like, you know what, that's going to be for after my PhD. You know, I really just want to focus, um, on my dissertation, you know, getting that, that, side of my life done. And then like personal goals too, you know, like in my, in my personal life. Um, so for me, what happened was like a huge natural disaster. So we had hurricane Mm -hmm. Ida, um, in August. And, um, so we're still out of our home. Like we're still, you know, having to do a lot of repairs, like a lot of people around our area. But what was curious for me is just like, the burnout that occurs when you yourself are going through a crisis, you know, and whether that, you know, so for me, it was Hurricane Ida. For other people, it could be, you know, the fires in Colorado or, you know, hurricanes in Florida or, you know, natural disaster, wildfires in California, you know, just whatever mm-hmm. disaster is coming along that really makes you rethink, you know, okay, like, am I in a job? Or and am I in a position where I can prioritize, you know, my own family and my own well-being? you know, almost at the same time as taking care of my clients. And for mm-hmm. me, like going through that type of natural disaster where I was expected to, you know, the day after see clients in their homes where we didn't even have 911 working as, you know, as a phone call. So I was like, well, if anything happens in the field, like, who are you going to call? Like, who yeah. am I going to reach out to? You know, we didn't have internet. Um, there were still downed power lines and trees in the middle of the road. And I just remember thinking, this is not, um, this is not for me. I don't think that this, I'm not. And again, like that guilt coming up of like, I'm not strong enough. You know, there's something about me that is that is wrong to where I am not strong enough to take care of my clients and take care of myself in this situation. Um, so for me, it took really like that point of just being like, if this happens again, like I need, I need to create a position for myself. Like I need to create this life for myself where it can be flexible around disasters and around crises. Um, cause I just never want to be, you know, and that's my own trauma, right. That I have to unpack with my own therapist about, yeah. you know, what I want to create a life to look like that's going to be sustainable and as crisis proof as possible, you know, for myself and my family. Cause that's, that's really my top priority, you know, as well as my client's safety, you know? Um, so for, for me, the steps that I took is I really, and like, it, it comes back to that community care and that support is I reached out to my supervisor. I reached out to everybody I could find. I joined like a ton of Facebook groups and just asked, Hey, how did you get started in private practice? What was the best way to start? You know, I listened to every podcast out there, um, you know, every YouTube channel about starting private practice. And for me, you know, what's amazing is that it, it really was a situation where you could really teach yourself a lot of these tools. Mm -hmm. And I promise you, there is nothing harder than for me working in community mental health. Like it's almost like starting your own business, like becoming a small business owner was easier than putting myself in those situations, you know, and, and it teaches you so much about being flexible and working with clients about with high needs and like, um, with boundaries, you know, whether that's around like your own boundaries or your work-life balance boundaries. Um, so a lot of that translated over into the practice, but that's, that's the long answer. Um, so yeah, I'm in in a super better position now. People people can relate to that. And like, 
when you share a longer answer, people get to hear more about, you know, the process, which is so relatable. And I, I really appreciate your vulnerability and sharing about, you know, the natural disaster that you experienced. And that's a very fair feeling to not want to go see clients the next day and really be thinking about your safety and thinking about, you know, is this really for me? And, um, I think sometimes, I don't know if this was your experience, but I think sometimes when we're becoming a therapist and we're in grad school and we're doing the trainings and the clinical hours, our focus is so much on our clients that we kind of forget to think about ourselves. It's like, we're not just like, the goal isn't just to get licensed. The goal isn't just to, you know, support clients. The goal is to like create a flourishing life too. And a life that, you know, nourishes yourself and takes care of yourself and, you know, fulfills that need of like what you enjoy about being a therapist. But also gives you space to live your life, whether that's not doing the 60 hour work week or, um, yeah, whether it's kind of picking and choosing which kind of hard you want. Like I liked that you even compared like, yeah, starting a private practice is hard. It takes a lot of hours and time and creativity and research. Um, but it, it sounded like how you worded it. Like it actually is a lot easier than maybe some of the, the job that you were doing in community mental health and just, I think that is one of the cool pieces. I think there's a lot of hardship that people have experienced collectively through the pandemic. And I think right now there's a surge of clinicians, of therapists that are questioning, you know, like we're navigating a pandemic and supporting clients through the pandemic. And is this sustainable for me? And in which way? And what are the ways that I take care of myself and like the work home separation and it's all kind of merged together because everyone's working from home and seeing clients from home. And, you know, there's all these different parallels. So I appreciate you speaking into your own experiences about, you know, the disasters that you went through. And then also just the questions of like, can I do this? And what I appreciate too, is like, it sounds like you did, like you, you took the challenge, you added yourself to groups, you watched videos on YouTube and um, that's really cool to hear that, you know, you made it happen. Yeah. And, and like I said, like, you know, and just like what you said, Claire, you know, it, it is not for everybody, you know, private practice has its own challenges. You're not getting a stable paycheck every week. Um, mm -hmm. taxes, like maybe we just like bring that up as just a general topic, like doing your own taxes or, you know, just like organizing your own taxes, you know, that's a whole different system, right? Yeah. But I will challenge anybody who's questioning that, you know, if you are in private practice and you're just starting out, you know, talk to your friends who are still in community mental health. You know, I just called up one of my friends today who's in community mental health and we're still dealing. I mean, I even forgot about COVID while still talking about the natural disaster. It's kind of like compacted disasters and crises on top of one another. But that was mm -hmm. so difficult to navigate, right? Of like, do I go into this person's home when they're sick? And, you know, um, yeah. it, it's like you feel safe for a minute and then the next one comes out, you know, 2.0. So yeah. for me, what helps is, is calling my friends who are still in community mental health and offering that support of like, hey, do you need someone to talk to? You know, do you need the support while I have this time off? You know, is like a genuine friend. Um, but also reminding me of like, I, I am so privileged. You know, I'm hundred percent teletherapy, right? I am yeah. so privileged in not having to worry about that anymore. You know, about literally mm -hmm. not having to worry about, you know, my health or the health of my clients while navigating COVID. Um, yeah. so I think that's a question as well. You know, if you're a therapist with a chronic illness or, you know, who's just more vulnerable, um, to, to illness in general, or just to, to anything out there and in homework, you know, asking if that's something that's, that's sustainable for you and asking whether you're willing to, 
to really set, you know, just genuinely like to sacrifice your health or, you know, risk your health Mm -hmm. for that type of work. Yeah. No, I love that. Now I'm wondering if you could maybe share a little bit about your decision process in terms of private practice, because you talked about this earlier about the guilt piece of like choosing Mm -hmm. what's best for you versus what's best for your client. And you can choose both. Um, but what kind of guilt did you wrestle with as you launched your private practice or as you pursued that? Like, was there anything that came up for you in terms of that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think just in general, as women, we receive a lot of messages of, you know, you have to sacrifice yourself. You have to, you know, if you're not burning out, like, is, are you even working? Are you even working if you're not trying to like balance everything, Mm -hmm. you know, on your own plate, including, you know, your issues that your clients were going through? Um, and of course there was a lot of guilt when I decided, um, especially not to accept Medicaid, like our state's Medicaid, because all of my clients, you know, in community mental health were Medicaid based, but I had seen just too many times in my experience of Medicaid, um, or insurance in general, you know, just, um, clawing back, you know, stuff that they had paid us or cutting off clients from these services, um, to where I said, you know, that's not, that's not good for the clients either. Like that's not sustainable Mm -hmm. for me and that's not sustainable for the clients. And, you know, I am just one person and I cannot change this entire system. And, and Kelly Stevens, you know, with private practice pro, she has this, she had this awesome idea where she was like, there are other ways to give back besides sacrificing yourself, you know, in seeing clients face to face. So I think in the way that's sustainable for me to give back now is having Mm -hmm. a sliding scale. So even not dealing with Medicaid and just saying, Hey, do you want to come for free? Like I have a few pro bono spots, you know, um, I will see you and we will not have to deal with that, which again, might not be legal in every state. So just check with your state, you know, in in Louisiana it is, um, for Medicaid clients. But also like the way that I want to give back now is to support clinicians who are serving the most um, marginalized clients, the most Mm -hmm. vulnerable clients, you know, um, through my work, through, um, through the blog or through podcasts like this of supporting those who are doing that type of work. So I think Mm -hmm. more on like the, when I think of social work, like the macro level, right. Of supporting those clinicians. Um, and then in turn supporting those clients. Um, so that helped with a lot of my guilt, but, but certainly I think some days are better than others. Um, but also just accepting that, that guilt, it's not productive right now. You know, I need to focus my energy on, on helping my family right now through, you know, after this natural disaster and then getting myself to a point where the practice is sustainable enough to where, you know, we can give back to the community in that way. Mm, well, I really appreciate you sharing that because yeah, like that's so real to, to question that. And whether it's the piece, like you said, and highlighted of like, maybe it looks different in terms of giving back. Maybe it is offering a few free spots if that's possible or like even the creativity that you were saying of like through blogging, through podcasting, like there's other ways that we still add value to the field. Uh, it also, cause I also feel similar. Like it's one of the reasons I have this podcast because really wanting to give to people that, you know, are in similar shoes as me currently, or, you know, are in the licensing journey and having questions and wanting to grow. But, um, there's also this piece that, I mean, this is a whole different conversation for another day, but that piece of like, where does that even come from? Like, why do we need to give pro bono? Mm. Why do we need to continue to self-sacrifice? Um, like even just that thought process, like I'd be curious to even do another episode at some point about that, because 
I'm really curious because um, I know some people really believe in sliding scales and other people don't. And that's a whole nother conversation for another day. But, you know, where does that process come from? And um, at, at what value, who does that benefit when you're self-sacrificing in that way? Um, does that actually help your clients yeah. or is it actually kind of more hurtful to have that resentment when you go into session or um, that depletion that you have because you're not honoring what you need? Yeah. And you know, that's such a good point. I genuinely, before I started private practice, did not realize how controversial in the field it was to say like, oh, if a client can't afford your fee, refer them to community mental health. And it was so, you know, I, I realize this is controversial, but it was interesting to see how controversial it was to suggest community mental health as a solution Um, to maybe clients who couldn't afford, you know, private pay, but who really needed like some trauma work. And to me, it's interesting that we blame the clinicians or we, you know, we attack the clinicians who are not willing to like, or who can't, you know, just like not even just willing, but like who can't have more pro bono spots or sliding scale spots instead of saying, okay, how do we make community mental health better then? Like, how do we get clinicians who have more training, you know, who aren't just starting off in the field? How do we get them to, to be able to sustainably like work with those types of clients and make community mental health better. So it's not just like the stigmatized last resort kind of solution, you know? Um, so I think that's really interesting when you bring that up and and really ties back into these stereotypes that we have about Mm -hmm. community mental health and community mental health providers. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So much to unpack with all of that. I wish we could keep talking because <laughs> there's so much to do mm-hmm. it. <laughs> um, but I am so grateful just for this slice of time that we had together of just really learning a little bit more about your lived experiences and your passion for community mental health and improving it and really supporting people that are navigating it because, um, we need more of that. We need more conversations like this to help, um, just continue to to grow and help it flourish. So thank you so much. And I'm wondering if there's a way, is there a plug of any kind for the audience to follow you, to, to know what's going on next? Um, I'll, I'll also plug that in the show notes as well, but how can they connect with you moving forward? Yeah, absolutely. So you can find um, my research, my blogs, um, kind of both formal and informal resources um, at www.mycarismyoffice.com and um, at mycarismyoffice on Facebook and Instagram. And you can find more of my um, private practice work um, at revivepractice.com. So, you know, feel free to reach out uh, over social media, over email, or over any of those websites. And um, I'd really love to connect, whether that's about community mental health, um, or private practice. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Victoria. It was a pleasure having you and I look forward to having future conversations, um, moving forward. Thank you so much for having me today, Claire. I really enjoyed it. Hi, flourishing therapeneurs. I wanted to hop on and share that our course flourishing in private practice is coming spring 2022. If you are a pre-licensed student, trainee, associate, or even a licensed therapist that perhaps is either wanting to learn more about strengthening your private practice or curious to take the leap from agency to being your own boss, this course will walk you through all the steps from the basics of setting up your business structure, creating your brand, building your reputation in the field, and strengthening your systems to help your business flourish. This course is filled to the brim with tangible examples templates, and structure to help your business thrive and for you to grow and flourish personally and professionally. 
This course will be open for enrollment for two weeks in the spring, and then we'll close until the fall for a second round of enrollment. If this is you and you are wanting in, go to our website at theflourishingtherapreneur.com to join our mailing list and to be the first to know when the doors open. We also have a free download on our website called 10 Steps to Starting a Private Practice, available for you today. So if you're wanting to get started sooner or dip your feet into the idea, don't wait another moment. Thank you for tuning in to the Flourishing Therapreneur podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review as that helps other clinicians and therapreneurs find our community and thrive through our offerings. Want to take your business a step further? Visit theflourishingtherapreneur.com or our Instagram with the same handle. Connect with our free community or sign up for an upcoming course to help cultivate your thriving business and endeavors so you can flourish personally and professionally. Until next time, I'm your host, Claire Blakey, and I believe you deserve to flourish as a therapreneur.